Hey guys, this is Kabane. Today we're going to be continuing and possibly completing our discussion on apophatic theology and its meaning in the Orthodox tradition. So the last video that I made in this series was uh, one and a half to two months ago. So if you're a new subscriber or viewer and you haven't seen those yet, you will be able to make I think reasonable amount of sense out of today's video taken on its own terms, but if you find it confusing, you might find that the previous videos in the series, and this is the fourth video in the series, I believe, uh, those previous videos will give some context. Before getting into that, I want to plug, as usual, my Patreon and YouTube memberships. Um, if you are in a financially good situation and you believe that this content is helpful for a wide audience, I ask that you consider becoming a patron or YouTube member. The latter is more expensive because YouTube takes a higher cut of the money, but I've made it available because some people have requested it. Uh, there are three tiers of patronage, and at the top tier, which many people have found very useful, uh, I guarantee at least one hour per month of one-on-one -on -one discussion time on whatever question that you have to ask, as long as I think I have something reasonable, uh, reasonably intelligent to say on the matter you're interested in. Uh, it's I say I guarantee at least one hour, but usually when you get me on the phone, uh, it, it lasts significantly longer. And I'm happy to do that. It's something I enjoy, but I do need to prioritize that in one way or another. So I'm willing to talk to people for whom it's exceptionally important just for spiritual or intellectual reasons that they talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, but this is the principal way in which I'm prioritizing it right now. So that top level of, of patronage um, will guarantee you at least one hour per month. Um, so there's also, as mentioned in the description box, you can give 99 cents per month through Anchor. Uh, that is very, very helpful. It definitely adds up and it really is instrumental in continuing to produce this content. Um, and finally, because these videos are premiering now, during and before the premiere, you are able to make a one-time contribution by clicking the dollar sign button under the chat box on the right of this video screen. So thank you everyone who has made a contribution, who has become a patron, and who has just been a consistent viewer in general. It really is very encouraging. So with that said, let's say our opening prayer, and then we'll get into the main topic of today's video. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. So, I have this labeled as the logic of apophaticism too, because it actually continues in some ways a train of thought which we began in the preceding video in this series, though it is not as if this is only a continuation of that such that it doesn't have its own kind of internal unity. So I think it will make a reasonable amount of sense taken on its own, um, uh, but you might want to see the, the previous videos for context. So the terms I want to introduce to you today are nature and supernature. Uh, supernature is the archetype for nature, and the way that we should conceive created natures, and I want to make very clear that when I'm talking about nature in this context, I'm talking specifically about creaturely natures, okay? So when I say supernature, what I mean is 
the nature of God. So these created natures bear a particular sort of relationship to supernature. Uh, the created natures are like a design which is imprinted into wet cement. And you see the picture that is on the left of the screen provides an example of what this actually looks like concretely. So this is like the signet reel, it, uh, signet ring rather. If you are a king, you have a signet ring and you use that to imprint your royal seal onto those things which you want marked out as bearing your specific imprimatur or endorsement. If you send a royal epistle, you mark it out as being associated with you and authentically expressing your will by using your signet ring. And that signet ring usually contains a symbol which you want to be associated with your personal reign. So the Egyptians were, ve were well known as using, I believe it's called the Ankh uh, symbol in their signets. It's um, a symbol that means life. And actually, noting the various signets of the various pharaohs of Egypt is one of the most important ways that historians correlate specific archaeological layers with the reigns of specific pharaohs of Egypt because they send their material all throughout the Near East and you find in the ground the remnants of their particular signs and symbols. So just a bit of trivia for you there. But what I want to emphasize for you here is the nature, or since we're already using the word nature, let's pick a different term, the kind of relationship that nature has with supernature. So supernature denotes that sort of existence which belongs to God. And at the heart of theism, of the normative theistic view of reality, is an absolute and qualitative distinction which is made between God and his creation. So it's as if we divide all of reality into two principal categories. And on one side, there is God. And on the other side, there is the created order. And in the created order, we find beings like human beings, like dogs, like trees, but we also find angels on the created side of this distinction, which I think is one very important point when we talk about things like supernatural reality, which is that we should not be thinking of two categories of reality, physical and spiritual, and then angels are on the spiritual side and we're on the physical side. No, we should be thinking about God and creation. Now, the question that this creates, of course, is how is it that a human being can actually know God if God is in his own category of existence and we are in our own categories. Indeed, this question of the relationship of divine transcendence, that is his utter distinction from the world, and divine immanence, that is the mode in which he's present in the world, is the governing question not only of our discussion of apophatic theology, but also of the Christology of the ages, the nature of the incarnation, because the incarnation joins these two categories of reality together. It ties them together such that one is brought into communion with the other without thereby eliminating 
the distinction. This is the great mystery of the Christian faith. Mystery meaning not that which is hidden so that it might be hidden forever, but hidden, as the Lord says, so that it might be elucidated and revealed. And one of the most important features of this kind of relationship, according to the analogy which I've set forth, like a signet ring and that which is imprinted from the signet ring, is that while there is a genuine likeness between God and that which he creates by imprinting his own qualities upon the nothingness of contingency, that is, that which does not exist in and of itself, Nevertheless, that relationship of likeness, of imprinting, of symbolization is not a relationship which means the creation actually is the overflow of the divine presence or the overflow of the divine life. So a person, if he is actualized as being fully human, if all of those potentials which are intrinsic to the qualities of human nature are realized, that is not the same thing as saying that a human being is deified. Deification goes together with the realization of all human potentials, but that is because human nature is created as an imprint of the archetype which it is an imprint of, and thus, to join the archetype with the type will bring the potentials of that which is typified to their full realization. And let's not forget that tupos in the Greek language, or typos, actually literally means an imprint of this sort. And so we can see, we can see typology as coming from both spatial and temporal relationships. The tabernacle as an imprint of the life of heaven is, an, uh, is a type from the top down. And because heaven dwells with earth in its totality in the world to come, it is also a sign of the coming future. So because God descends to dwell with creation and in creation in the world to come, the distinction between typology from the top down and typology of the past in relation to the future is integrated such that the distinction no longer is a separation. So the way that I think we can understand this most concretely in terms of its actual realization in the life of the world is by looking at the relationship between Christ and the Theotokos, the mother of God. Theotokos, literally for those who are not familiar, means one who gives birth to God. And the reason that Theotokos, this Greek word, took on such dogmatic importance in the history of the church is because it was seen as very, very important to identify every action undertaken in the whole life of the incarnate Jesus Christ as being authentically predicable of the divine Logos, who is eternal. And thus we say that the eternal word of God died on the cross. It is an activity which is individuated according to the mode of individuation, that is the second person of the Trinity, the activity belongs to the human nature, and yet the rhythm according to which that activity is realized is 
played out in a personal particular way and that personal way is the eternal son and so one of those activities one of these relationships which is authentically predicable of the second person of the trinity of the divine logos of god the only begotten as the evangelist john calls him is birth so the theotokos gives birth to god and this both creates and expresses a relationship of mutual interiority the theotokos is in christ and yet christ is also in the theotokos the mother of god and in this way she is an emblem of what the church is called to be in christ we see in the gospel of luke and the book of acts that jesus's family is understood to extend to all those who have been baptized into jesus christ so there's this famous passage in the gospel where a woman cries out blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed and jesus says blessed and then the word he uses can sometimes be rendered indeed and or sometimes can be rendered indeed rather um, but i think because of things which i'm about to tell you the best way of understanding it is blessed indeed and also is the one who hears the word of god and keeps it so the virgin mary says early in the gospel of luke let it be done for me according to thy word it is said of her that the holy spirit overshadows her and the only begotten is conceived in her womb well in the next book in luke's writing in the book of acts we have a household in which there are 120 people there are the 11 apostles and they select matthias to complete their number to bring them 12 and we are also told that the virgin mary is there and then as the narrative goes forward we hear that the holy spirit comes and descends upon the church now the reason that the virgin mary is identified as being present in this household where you have 12 apostles who are linked obviously with the 12 tribes of israel and where you have 120 people understood therein to be the extension of this 12 tribe relation is because the virgin mary is a sign and an emblem of the entire church the church is identified as the city of god it is the new jerusalem permeated by the holy spirit we're just we're about to talk about this in the very next point uh it's the new jerusalem permeated by the holy spirit and indeed in the old testament women are described in terms of cities and cities in terms of women in Genesis chapter 2, for example, when God takes Eve out of Adam's side, it is said that God built Eve from Adam's side. And that word for build is very distinctly an architectural term. And thus, the very next time that it's used is when Cain builds a city for his son uh, Enoch. And we see that Cain is here taking to himself the place of god because just as god built eve for his son adam so cain builds a city a bridal city for his son enoch we see throughout the scriptures that cities are what perpetuate an enduring bond of culture and language and they are also the nursery within which a nation's collective identity grows up so a people group 
tends to move towards and in relation to their cities. This is the way that one generation nurses the next, culturally speaking, and it is also the offspring which one generation produces. You can see these are two aspects of a single image. And this is why the Virgin Mary is typologically correspondent to the church understood collectively, because the Virgin Mary is both mother of Christ and therefore mother of all the faithful. I won't I could talk about John 19 right now, but I'm, I'm just going to choose not to get on that tangent. She's mother of all the faithful, and the church principally embodies the typology of the bride of the last Adam. So the first Eve is called mother of all living. She's actually called Eve for the first time after and only after God promises to give her a seed who will crush the head of the death-dealing serpent. The name mother of all living, Eve, is given not in relation to this generic relationship as, oh, she's mother of all human beings. I mean, that's rather pedantic. This is a name which is given to her in view of the prophetic promise of the Messiah who will destroy death. So she's mother of all living. God makes a promise to Eve that is fulfilled in Mary. And the people in whom that is fulfilled, namely the church, are thus signified by the Virgin Mary, who personally embodies all of those promises which are realized in the church. So Christ is supernature, clothed in nature. That is, he is the archetype after which the whole creation is imprinted. This is why throughout Genesis chapter 1, we read that God takes the raw material of the world, he shapes it, he molds it, he forms, he fills, and he brightens it. And associated with this is his naming of each specific creature. And we see that the naming of the creature not only expresses that reality which is intrinsic to its particular mode of creaturehood, but is part of the act of creation itself. The making of a creature knowable in the gift of a name is part of what endows it with its distinct creaturely glory. And this is because in the one name of God who surpasses all other names, there exists every specific name for every specific creature. So God is infinite, and that means he is infinite in his depth. As we've spoken of in the last series of videos on this subject, the precondition for intelligibility is a web along which every node of that web bears a relation of similarity and distinction with every other node on that web. So if you only saw the color yellow, if that was the only experience that you ever had, you wouldn't be able to make the color yellow intelligible as anything distinct. You can only name a thing when it exists in a relation of distinction. And distinction, I emphasize here, does not mean separation. Distinction is a means by which two things exist in communion with each other as mutually constitutive and mutually interior. Mutually constitutive when we speak about the life of God, mutually interior when we speak about the relation of God with the creation. So the one name of God, that by which he declares his 
character in totality within the life of the Trinity, that name is the very aspect of God's character which creatively echoes throughout the formless void and dark mass of water which God creates in Genesis chapter 1-1. And in that echoing throughout the formless void and dark world, God heavenizes the earth. He draws it closer and closer to the fullness of its celestial prototype. This relationship of imprint also explains why Moses ascends to the top of Mount Sinai where the glory cloud of God dwells and he goes into the divine darkness so that he might acquire the vision of the divine light. So as you transcend what we take to be normative knowing, you enter into the cloud of unknowing and then come to the knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This was Florovsky's criticism of, of Lofsky, um, whom I've, I've expressed admiration of many times. We've talked about that in that relationship between these different theological emphases uh, in preceding videos. But Moses ascends into the presence of God and it says in the book of Numbers, he beheld the form of the Lord. I think this convergence of terminology with later philosophical theology is no accident. Because in philosophical theology, a thing is what it is in relation to its divine prototype. So God has an idea of what a thing is in his mind and he creatively imprints that idea on the space of nothingness. So he creates a creature which intrinsically, according to its very own life, symbolizes something about him. And we measure a thing's goodness according to its degree of correspondence with that divine archetype or prototype. So consider what makes a good circle is its degree of correspondence and closeness with the ideal or perfect circle. You can see the way that the language works even in contemporary parlance. And so in Exodus 33 to 34, when God promises to make his name known to Moses, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And we see that goodness and name are understood as arguably coextensive. And that is why God, in naming those things he has made, is able in that very same way of knowing to declare them good. He shines his light on the world. And in shining his light on the world, he evaluates a thing's correspondence with that which is its archetype existing in his own mind. He knows it for what it is by his light and in knowing it, he acts in relation to it. Even in contemporary English idiom, we see the way that the language of light and luminosity is understood to have reference to this way of knowing, intellection. A person, if he is very intelligent, is often described as bright. If a person is very unintelligent, they are often described as dim. 
And I think it's, it's quite interesting the way that these idioms naturally grow up. And I believe that they have a real metaphysical basis in reality. So Christ is divine. He is the one out of whom all other things are. He is the form which forms and informs all creatures. He takes the raw material of the world and he shapes it in a variety, in a great plenitude of distinct manifestations. He is called the form of the Lord because everything about the character of God, which is to be said, and there are an infinite number of things which are to be said about the character of God. Everything which is said about what makes God God, because let us not forget that operation, energy, actuality expresses the content of nature. There's an infinite bubbling up in the life of the second person of the Trinity, in the third person of the Trinity. Everything that is to be said is said and sayable in him. And creation is him saying a great many of those things. So by the one form, he is multiply manifest in many forms. By the one name of the second person, he is multiply manifest in many names. And to say that he is clothed in created nature is simply to say that the archetype upon whose basis and after whose pattern the creation was formed is joined with the type. So imagine that you have this signet ring and you have the stamp which it impresses upon the wet cement or the metal which you can see here. It, there is a correspondence in the shape of the signet ring and the shape of that which is impressed in the wet cement. The correspondence is such that you cannot identify one with the other. It is not as if the signet ring is the other thing. It is not even as if you can properly say that it is in the other thing, except in a very heavily qualified sense. But the correspondence that is created by the mode of the imprint's production allows for the two to be united in a uniquely appropriate way. So you often hear in evangelical parlance, we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. Well, to tell you the truth, it's a good analogy. The creation is created as a Jesus-shaped reality. And thus, when Jesus becomes incarnate and binds himself to the world, he of course does so in the miniature representation of that world, in whom that world is destined to attain its perfection and glory, namely the human family. And so the archetype is joined with that which was fashioned after the archetype. He is supernature clothed in nature. The mother of God is nature clothed in supernature. She is a creature through and through. She is on one side of this God world distinction and it is most certainly the creation side, the world side. She is created, she has a beginning. She develops through time. But she is clothed 
with the life of the uncreated. So this language of mutual interiority, the technical term is perichoresis. It was originally coined, that word perichoresis, as a way of describing the relationship between the two natures of Christ. Because every nature has a manifestation or an actualization which belongs intrinsically to that nature. And what that means is that its potentials, those which it can be, are realized, they're actualized. So we call this actualization an activity. You can call it an actuality. You can call it an energy. But think about a newly conceived human being. When it is in the womb, when it is a fetus, it is not rational in an actual sense. Nevertheless, rationality being intrinsic to what it means to be human is present in potential. And as the child develops in the womb of his mother, as the mother's life is communicated to the child and he is realized more and more fully as he receives life from that which possesses life because you can only receive a new quality from that which possesses that quality to begin with coffee can only become hot when something else hot is put in communication with it as it develops what started as a potential which was present in the particular person according to a potential mode it becomes more and more actual and what it means for it to be actual is it is active you can see the english cognates here actually signify a real ontological relationship and how is it that a person becomes more and more developed in intellectual capabilities the classical term would be power, intellectual power in the sense of capacity. If you have the ability to walk, you say it's your power of walking. So how do you become more and more developed and skillful in your intellectual capacities? Well, it is by utilizing them. And so we see that there is this sense in which motion is simply what it means to possess a quality in the first place. What does it mean to be read? To be read simply means that you manifest light in reflecting it specifically in relation to those subjects who have the capacity to apprehend and receive this redness according to the power of seeing so that the power of knowing something is itself correspondent with the thing which is known so we see this relationship between that which does the imprinting and that which is imprinted. This is something which seems to run throughout all the nature of existence. So God being God is infinitely actual in that he cannot become more God than he is. And God being infinite is infinitely himself. So you will never find the end of what it means to be God. And the human creature exists as a developing family as potentials are actualized as it receives life from that which has life in himself namely god and in the incarnation the divine logos who is fully actual infinitely so as a divine person 
actualizes in totality to the highest possible degree every human potentiality the moment that the divine person appropriates a human potentiality so he is the most perfect form of what it means to live as an adolescent and he actualizes the fullness of what it means to live properly as an adolescent in the adolescent phase of his incarnate life and he does this by communicating his own uncreated qualities his uncreated properties his uncreated energies he communicates those to human nature and thus the human nature is made most fully human when divine life divine energy becomes interior to it and that interiority is what realizes it as fully human now this is really essential that you understand because there is a distinction that we are making here a deified human being the mother of God for example she receives those uncreated operations those uncreated energies which are communicated to human nature in the incarnation of the word why because there's one and only one human nature that's what Calcedon teaches us the human family is consubstantial just as God Father Son and Holy Spirit is consubstantial that's why I emphasize this point that in Genesis there's only one image of God that one image of God is the human family understood as a corporate organism where every individual person has an effect on every other individual person she receives that uncreated life because it was communicated to human nature in the incarnation because the divine son the divine word possesses that human nature as truly his own and that human nature which he possesses is identical to the human nature which all human creatures possess but that which is interior to the mother of God and all of those who participate in deification is interior to them as that which is received so the uncreated energy always bears the imprint of that which it realizes namely the nature which is divine God is self-existent and he realized he is eternally and infinitely and perfectly realized in this plenitude of infinitely rich uncreated operations or we can call them thoughts we can call them forms we can call them ideas um, they the logi are uncreated operations uncreated operations which become the archetypes for creatures are called logi or logoi if you want to use Erasmian pronunciation and so this is the inner logic of what we mean when we say we become everything that God is by grace except for identity of essence that's not a trivial statement because this is what governs the peculiarity of our relationship with God it is that God and God alone has life in himself he alone exists in and of himself and that means that all creation relates to him as the only one from whom they can derive their ultimate good and we derive real goods from other human creatures we can even derive divine goods from other human creatures but only insofar as those divine goods are received by those communicating them from God God is present in every deified human creature and God being God 
communicates himself as gift to all those who would receive his gift. So when he is present in, let's say, a saint, he communicates himself in and through the life of that saint because the uncreated activity remains the activity of God. And this helps us to understand the real inner nature of the world, which is not a kind of existence where things are always in bloody competition with each other, such that one thing's good must mean another thing's destruction. This is one of the most important points, I think, that I can make. That is fundamentally the philosophy of hell, where it's a zero-sum game, and in order to be good, you have to denigrate some other creature. God is not a God who hoards all of the gifts for himself. God is generous with all his gifts. He communicates himself infinitely and with infinite generosity to all his creation. And the conditions he sets on our worship of him are conditions which are set not arbitrarily, but because on account of the way that human beings are wired, we will only be able to participate in him in certain ways. There are certain kinds of behaviors which are simply incompatible with participation in God or to say participation in the only thing which will provide us with ultimate happiness. So one way to look at this is Revelation 1 and Revelation 21. In scripture, the masculine and the feminine are two very important categories. And as C.S. Lewis points out, masculine and feminine is not the same thing as male and female. Masculine and feminine is the broad category, and maleness and female, femaleness is the particular instantiations of masculine and feminine principles in an embodied form. But every human creature has masculine and feminine qualities to it. It's just that you specifically have male or female bodies. Okay, so masculine and feminine these are the broad categories, male and female. It's a specific instantiation and embodiment of those categories. And the essence of masculinity, and I just want you to remove from your mind all of the associations that have arisen about this word masculine or the word feminine in contemporary debates and understand that I'm using these words um, in a way which may overlap with those, but I want to build that understanding constructively without importing any of this other stuff in from the beginning. Masculine, a masculine characteristic is a particular kind of relation. Okay, so the father is masculine in relation to the son. Why? Because the father is the one who in the eternal divine life actively gives birth to the son and moves toward the son. The son in relation to the father is feminine not female, feminine, because he receives that love which the father imparts to him and reciprocates it as son. And the Holy Spirit is he who both expresses and manifests that relationship, both in relation to the creation and in relation to father and son. So there is a relationship where you have an initiator, a reciprocator, and one who binds them together. And that is the pattern for every relationship, whether we're talking about a divine relation or a creaturely relation. 
We can see this in the various relationships which the human being has. All human beings are masculine in relation to the creation. We represent God to the creation. The creation owes the human family obedience as its representative uh, as the representative of God who communicates God's divine sovereignty in relation and over uh, the world. So you can even see this in things like animal husbandry. It means caretaking of God's creatures and so we naturally reach for masculine idioms and masculine symbols to describe this. The human family is the bridegroom of the creation which is bride. Think about the word for uh, ground used in Genesis 2. Adama is a feminine word and Adam is a masculine word. Adam is the bridegroom of the Adama and both ma male and female are masculine in relation to the creation. Yet the whole human family is feminine in relation to God. The whole human family stands as the as under the authority of God and as that which receives and reciprocates that life which God gives us as gift. So in the context of Dionysian metaphysics, that is Dionysius the Areopagite, we speak of this as procession and reversion. So God extends himself out and he creatively imprints himself on nothingness and he thus self-processes outwards. And the creation being that which exists as God's self-imprint, which he always upholds and sustains as a self-imprint, in the nature of the case, will revert inwards towards God. And this is simultaneous. Okay, so this is not a temporal relation, at least not necessarily. It has temporal manifestations, but the relation that I've described to you, procession and reversion, is simultaneous. It reverts to God in the very same motion that it processes from him. And this procession reversion relation is an imprint of a relation which exists within God between father and son. Fa the father gives himself totally to the son and the son in virtue of receiving all that he has and is from the father returns and reciprocates back to the father. The father glorifies the son, the son glorifies the father reciprocally. And this is called gift and thanksgiving. There are many different echoes of this relationship in different creational contexts. But the central point in this context is that that which belongs to the bridegroom is given to the bride. Because in this relation of procession and reversion, of extension outwards and receipt back inwards, of gift and thanksgiving, of creation and Eucharist, in this relationship, a bond is created such that the bridegroom is interior to the bride and vice versa. One of the ways that this is symbolized is in sex. I mean, you have a literal mutual interiority in a bodily context and it's that's just how it is i mean it's not um no point in, in in ignoring it because it's it's part of god's creation whether or not you think it's before or after the fall it's something which is made by god in the way that it is so in revelation one you have 
Jesus Christ appearing as the great high priest. He's taking care of the menorah in the heavenly temple. And he is described in a series of characteristics which are replicated blow for blow in the description of the city of God, which is the church in Revelation 21. Jesus has the glory of God from his face. The city of God is said to have the glory of God. It's described as a bride because it receives that which is given to her by the bridegroom and reciprocates it. We see this kind of relation actually all over the scriptures in many different ways. The book of Numbers begins with an enumeration of the male heads of household in the genealogical tables of Israel. But it ends with a discussion of the daughters of Zelophehad and the inheritance being transmitted through the female line in this specific context. There is a reason that the text has been structured in that way. It has real symbolic and theological significance. And this is why in Proverbs, the second person of the Trinity is described in bridal terms, not because the wisdom of God is female, but because the wisdom of God is feminine in relation to the Father. This is why a child is feminine before he reaches adolescence. Whether or not it is a boy or a girl, the, uh, the gendered, gender does not mean the same thing as, as sex, and it's, it's unfortunate these two words have been collapsed into each other just for the sake of nothing else of, of um, conceptual precision, but when I say gender, I mean masculine, feminine, I don't mean male and female. The gender quality of every child is feminine. And you know how that's manifest? Because every child has a high-pitched voice. It is not that uh, every child starts out with a low-pitched voice and, and girls, their voice goes up. It's rather that every child starts out with a high-pitched, girlish voice, and the boys' voices drop. The relation of reception that the children have in relation to mom and dad signify that they are feminine in relation to their parents who are masculine. And that is why you see the dyad can split open into a triad because you can have a dyad in the sense of this masculine feminine interrelation but then you have a triad in relation to the third party being the expression of the communion between the masculine and feminine relation so children manifest and continue to facilitate and intensify the communion which exists between bridegroom and bride husband and wife who thus become father and mother in building a household Now remember that we said that all divine operations, first of all, are coextensive, meaning you don't have any one of them without all of the others and there's an actual infinity of divine operations. So the analogy we've used in previous videos, but I will repeat again if you haven't seen those or if you've forgotten, is that of a infinite set of numbers. Take the set of all real positive integers one, two, three, four, five, six, you will never reach a last number. There's an actual infinity of positive integers. And now you take any one of them, take the number seven. What makes it the number seven? Well, internal to its being the number seven is it's being one more 
than 6, 1 less than 8. It's the internal to it being the number 7 is it being the result of 3.5 times 2, or 14 divided by 2. So you can see, you take any one integer, you have threads which bind it to every other integer in this positive set, meaning it is part of the interior character of any given number that all other numbers are present within it. And this is the way that the divine operation is simultaneously absolutely one, indivisible, but also infinitely diverse. There is an infinite depth to the divine energy, but the divine energy is not divisible. And the divine energy is the basis for knowability. Remember that in the development of this theme, we talked about how being is coextensive with intelligibility. That is, for a thing to exist entails and presupposes that it is knowable. Paul speaks of, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. God knows us into existence. God remembered Noah. That's the beginning of the recreation of the world because God brings Noah and those with him into his mind. And because all things are created in and through and from God's mind, when he calls them into his memory, he makes them real. That is why when God knows us fully, we are resurrected from the grave. That's why the Eucharist is so important because it is the memorial of Christ. It is God's memory of us in Christ, which is why we recite the names of those we're commemorating when we bring forth the Eucharist and the great entrance in the Orthodox liturgy. And it is, all, and it is also our remembrance of God in Christ. So we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit who makes Christ present on the altar brings Christ into our minds and brings us into his mind such that we are bound to the Father as sons of the Father. We become sons on account of the incarnation of the one and only, only begotten and eternal Son. So within this divine energy, which is infinitely deep, the Son, the Father, the Spirit are infinitely knowable in relation to each other because they apprehend each other's character, not merely according to the unity, but according to the depth of that unity. And they apprehend it all in a single motion. The Father, in embracing the Son in love, knows the Son for all that he is. And there is an infinite amount of all that God is in Christ. Now here's where apophatic theology comes into play. These energies, these are the qualities which are known. The energies are realizations of the nature which are idiomatically realized in these three divine persons. The energies express, actualize, realize, manifest in relation within the life of the Trinity that which belongs to each divine person as a divine person. Because the web of relation, or I put it here, likeness and distinction, this perhaps a better way to put it is a communion of relationship. 
in other words, because of the relationship that you see, like between 7, 8, 9, between 7 and 14, between 15, 5, and 3, all of these relations, all these threads are tying together every quality of God into one quality. So it's both one and many, not as one and many meeting in the middle, partially one, but partially many, but fully and totally one and fully and totally many, such that the manyness is necessary for it to be one and vice versa. I know this is kind of repetitive, but... I really do want to hammer home that point. Um, because the divine processions manifest what belongs to God by nature, and because this web of relation, of similarity and distinction, because that is the precondition for intelligibility, by logical implication, that which each procession manifests, namely the nature, the essence, is not a member of that web. It is rather that from which this web, and this is an image, obviously it is not going to hold true in every single sense, but that is from, uh, it is that from which this web flows. And because it's not a member of the web on account of which there is intelligibility, it transcends knowing. Since the web is the basis for intelligibility, the source of the web transcends intelligibility. And so when we speak about apophatic theology, we are speaking about God according to his all-transcending essence. And we know God according to his infinitely manifest and actual energies. And because God's essence is infinitely transcendent, because it is so full that it transcends any kind of ontology which creates a basis for knowing, that does not undermine our knowledge of God. Rather, what it says is that there is always more of God to know. And some people might ask the question at that point, well, if we can say there's always more of God to know, how do we know that his character, as it has been revealed, is representative. And I think this is this is more speculative. Okay, so parenthetical here. I'm, this is more speculative. This is more Cabane, Seraphim Hamilton speaking. Um, you can contest my interpretation of what has come before, but I think it is a, an interpretation of that, which is the tradition. What I'm about to say is kind of a speculative um, development of that or, or, or comment on its inner logic. Um, I think that's why when we speak of God in his all-transcendent essence, we don't actually say that we can't, that we can say nothing at all with the same degree of meaninglessness. And what I mean by that is there seems to be a sense in which it is more true to predicate negations than it is to predicate affirmations of the essence. Now, I want to make clear again. For those who are new to this, who are, who are just getting into this, who will need to listen to this again or read some, some books uh, about it, God is love. God is love. That's a positive affirmation. We can affirm all sorts of things about God because any property which is predicated of God is predicated on account of energy. 
and that's not just some, something which is true of God, it's something which is also true of us, right? So a human being is known and makes himself knowable or herself knowable according to the actualizations which are intrinsic to the nature of the human being according to the specific rhythm of that human being's individuated existence. So I am human and my human energies are manifest and realized and made knowable in the peculiar rhythm which belongs to Cabane or Seraphim Hamilton. So we're not just saying something which is true of God here when we talk about the relationship of epistemology to energies. As Gregory of Nyssa says, there's a sense in which even human nature is apophatically understood. But I think that this question of the representative character of divine revelation pertains perhaps to the um, appropriateness of negation. Now, the fathers do say that in an absolute sense, God transcends the negation as well. But there does seem to be this sense in which a negation is more appropriate when we speak about the essence taken in itself than it is to make a positive predication. Uh, and I think another reason why this question about the representative nature of God's revelation, namely, how do we know that the next energy that God will make manifest isn't going to be an energy which is totally contrary to everything which has come before, is that the operations of God are not, you know, randomly structured. They're not randomly like paint thrown against a wall. They have an elegant inner relationship. This infinite depth is flowing according to a very elegant pattern which pervades the whole at every level of its existence. So fractals are probably the best way to look at this. Now everything in the abstract mathematical realm is rooted and grounded in the mind of God. That's why we can speak of mathematical truths. That's why there are such things as abstract objects. Um, and it's fascinating that when you look at key uh, uh, functions in the abstract realm and you use them to generate imagery using computer programs, you find that the very same imagery appears in the concrete world like in a coastline or lightning. These fractal structures are pervasive both abstractly and concretely indicating that the materialist idea that you can just reduce everything to its smallest bits and there's no higher order form indicating that that is, that is uh, incorrect, to put it mildly. Um, but I think uh, a fractal basically is you take one shape and you go down into its constituent parts and you find that each of these constituent parts is a miniature imprint of that one shape. And then you go up, you have that one shape, and you realize that this one shape is itself a constituent part of a higher order structure, which is made up of replicas of this one shape and is itself a large scale version of the one shape. Now, God, his energies seem to me to be like this, in that we have the love of God, and we realize then that there are an infinite variety of uncreated loves, and each subtle variety of uncreated love, you take that, you open it up, and you find there are an infinite varieties of that variety. 
And then you go all the way back up and you say, well, what about the initial energy we were contemplating? You see, that is itself a variety of a higher order quality. And if you try to create an image of this relationship in your mind, it seems that what you're going to get is a sphere because you go round and round and round and round at every direction. You're always going to be going around. If that doesn't make sense to you, um, that's fine. That's just the imagery that, that, that I find appearing in my mind. And perhaps there are those out there who think in a similar way. Um, so because the web of relationship of similarity and distinction among the divine processions, which all necessarily exist together, they're coextensive with each other because that web emerges from and is actualized as a realization of divine nature, divine essence, which is the source. The source cannot be a member of that web. And because that web is the basis for us saying anything is knowable, knowability comes with the kind of interrelationships that we find in this web of divine processions. Because of those two things, God transcends intelligibility in his essence. And because he transcends intelligibility, we say he is beyond knowing in essence, not beyond knowing period, but beyond knowing in his essence, but knowable in his energies and infinitely so to an infinitely greater depth. And so we say God is beyond intelligibility and because intelligibility is coextensive with being, he is beyond being. That is the idea of God as beyond being at bottom. Okay, so to go through this, this again, to say a thing is intelligible is to speak of it as standing in a fabric of relationships understood as a network of similarities and differences or likenesses and differences, a network of relations. Any given point in this fabric is knowable according to its relations with all other points. Now in God, this fabric of relations exists as a simultaneous expression and realization of his nature by the divine persons. Now the divine nature, which is the source for the fabric, cannot thereby be a member of the fabric. Thus, the divine nature taken in itself, that is apart from the operations, which are what makes up the fabric, the divine nature taken in itself, apart from the operations, is beyond intelligibility. It is beyond knowing. And because knowing intelligibility is coextensive with being God, by implication, by deductive reasoning, is beyond being. So this way of elucidating it uh, is largely indebted to Eric Pearl in his book, Theophany. So I, um, I find Pearl's work in this specific area to be extremely useful. But I also want to state, since I'm citing him, uh, that I do disagree very sharply with Pearl on his interpretation of the Palamite doctrine of creation, where I think he totally misses the point and makes creation 
a necessary extension of God, which just is contrary to everything Palamas says about what makes creation creation and what makes God God. I mean, God is distinct from the creation precisely in this point. But that's another subject. Uh, so video's about an hour, so we'll have one more video in this series. Um, maybe it'll come out tomorrow, maybe it'll come out in a month, but I do have it written. So we'll have one more video in this series. That's one more slide, so I know it'll be one more video or with a reasonable degree of probability. Um, I want to thank everyone who has listened. I hope it has been helpful to you. Please remember, if you become a patron at that elite level, uh, the that's the third degree of patronage, which is called the elite uh, membership, you are guaranteed, if you arrange a call with me, you're guaranteed at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion about whatever kind of theological topic strikes your fancy, you're interested in, whatever questions you have about some things that I've said, if you want to talk about those, you get a guaranteed hour. Um, feel free to ask if you're not a, a patron, especially if it's if you find that it's personally very important to you or if it's being very stressful for you. Um, I try to talk to as many as I can when I think that it'll be useful, but your patronage is very, very much appreciated and it's very, um, very useful. And I want to thank everyone who has become a patron because I really would not have been able to continue to do these videos as long as I have um, without your patronage. So I will see you by God's will uh, tomorrow.